Episode 104 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with John Young. Rightio, team, welcome along to episode 104, yes, 104 of the Bevan James Isle Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness, so you can get all the benefits that go alongside it. Um, I've got a cool interview coming up for you today, actually. I did the interview for my other podcast last week, um, and it was just a really great interview. Actually, I've got another interview which I did on Saturday, which I want to use with you guys in the future as well. And My other podcast, I know many of you probably listened to, may have listened to my other podcast, may have not. It's kind of very specific to triathlon, but it's, it's I Am Talk. And recently we got a video clip of a man who was the first person with dwarfism to finish an Ironman. And it was a pretty inspirational clip, I'm going to be honest. Uh, this this man, you know, very, you know, very short in stature, had ran and ran, swim, bike, run, although he couldn't swim because the day of the race, the swim got cancelled. So, um, but he basically completed an Ironman now. For most people in this world, the idea of completing an Ironman is pretty crazy. But for someone with dwarfism, obviously they've got different kind of challenges that they're going to be presented with. And as I interviewed him, I just thought this this is such an inspirational kind of um, story. And, and I thought, well, this is a pretty cool one for you know to give to you guys as well. So I'm going to put that on pretty soon. And, and afterwards, I want to talk about a couple of things that he talked about Um because there's some really good insights into, I know, like he's, he's obviously a very successful man, and, uh, you know, it's not just as an athlete, but as, as a kind of a person, and to me, there was just some really good value in some of the things he talked about, so I thought maybe after the interview, uh, which is about half an hour long, I was going to give you a bit of a kind of, my thoughts on a couple of the insights that he gives in his experience, so that's pretty cool. Just before I chuck the interview on with uh, John, I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, I've, I've had sometimes going into this show, I struggle to think about what I'm going to talk about because this show is very much determined by my experience over the last few weeks. And often in those few weeks, I'll just kind of ideas will pop up and I go, Oh, that's something I need to talk about on the show. And uh, and so sometimes I really struggle leading into the show and I might have to sit down and really think about what I'm going to work on. Whereas other times, those two weeks are really filled up with lots of things that make me think about, oh, I need to talk about this. And in my next episode, I'm going to go pretty deep on a subject that's actually been pretty big in my life, and and particularly with some of my clients' lives as well. So we're going to dig pretty deep into that in the next episode of of the Bevan James Isles show. But one thing I've just just my own personal experience, and if you listen to my show for a while, one of the shows I did a while ago was this kind of whole theory of thinking about how you want to feel before you do the activity you want to do, and uh, obviously this is a bit of a sporting strategy, you know, the idea of a lot of people when they think about doing exercise, they think it's going to be really hard, and they think of all the barriers that are going to stop them from doing exercise, and so for us to be successful in exercise, one strategy we can think about is, or actually let's flip it on its head and not say all the reasons why it's going to be hard or why we're going to be unsuccessful, but instead pre-program ourselves to think of that moment of reward at the end of the session. So the thing I think about when I lead into exercise is what do I want to gain out of this session and how I'm going to feel when I when I achieve that thing that I've gained. Uh, it's that kind of, oh, this is going to be really hard. And st- instead of it being that, it's going to be, oh my God, I'm going to feel on top of the world when I finish this session. And this is something I've been working on, not just in sport, but in life over the last period of time for me, is that kind of, even when I work, I try to sit down at the beginning of the day, I'm very structured, so I kind of plan my days, and I even write down objectives for my day, and and even blocks of time, I write down, you know, I've got a little list in front of me here for my day today, and I've got my list of things I want to achieve, and how I want to achieve them, and I kind of mark them off as I go through my day. And, uh, and this kind of how do I want to feel at the end of this block and it's just a, I, I, to be honest it's been one of the most powerful tools that I've used in my life but it's been really interesting for me with my running recently and it's um, it's funny how much 
what you will preload going into a session will determine what you will get out of a session. And what I mean by that is that, so, you know, if you've listened to the show for a while, I've been getting back into my running. Luckily, I've been able to run injury-free for about the last three or four months now. And I'm getting to that place where, like, I'm only, for for a good runner, you know, they're probably going to run anywhere from six to ten times a week. Some people will do two runs in a day. Um, you know, so... For, for me right now, I'm doing four runs a week, which is not a huge amount yet. Uh, as I get closer to my A goal for the year, I will pick up that load. But I've kind of tried to have a very conservative approach to me achieving my A goal for the year. And so I've been very kind of not running too long, not running too much, and really haven't been trying to run too fast. But in this last block of time, because I'm now three or four months into my training, I'm noticing that my speed is coming through. And, and A, I love it. I love running fast. To me, one of the greatest highs in life is movement with intensity. And movement with intensity where you're trying to hold that intensity for a little bit longer than what you want. And uh, so in the last kind of maybe month or probably more just last couple of weeks, I've had maybe three or four runs where it's like, wow, I've, I've got another gear now. You know, like I've been able to hold speeds that were, you know, a couple months ago. weren't. You know, I remember looking at my watch a couple months ago and thinking, wow, the idea of doing a sub four minute K right now is, <laughs> I don't know if I can even do that again. And whereas some of my runs right now, I've been comfortably sitting at around 345s. But last week I had two very interesting experiences. I had a, a run, on, I basically do four runs a week at the moment. So I had my Tuesday runs an hour run. And it's kind of, there's no pressure on the run. It's just get out and do an hour. My Wednesday runs a hill repeat run. So basically I run up a hill for five minutes, turn around, just do that for 40 minutes. And then I do a longer run. So on the Friday I did a two hour run, which was a bit of a hilly run. So I ended up running about 25 Ks. And then Saturday morning is my, or Saturday is my 45 minute run, which again, like my Tuesday run, has the option of kind of being an easy run. Well, on Tuesday, Tuesday, I ran during the day and I went into the run thinking, you know what, just take it easy, get your time done. And the run, I, I achieved that objective, but the run in many ways was not the most enjoyable run because I kind of was just working through getting it done. Um, I, my, my pace was very slow. So for me, you know, when I'm running at a comfortable pace, I'm somewhere around 4.15 to four minute, four and a half minute Ks, um, you know, four and a half is kind of still comfortable, 4.15 I might be having a, just feeling a little bit better, but that day I ran around five minute Ks, which means I was going pretty slow for my speed. Now, you may be a runner and those speeds might be slower or faster for you, it doesn't really matter, it's just this is what I know about my own running. So my Tuesday run was very kind of lethargic, just getting through it. And in retrospect, after the run, I'd really programmed myself to have an average run. Like, I knew I needed to get out the door, and it was one of those days where it was just like, Bev, just get out the door, because it was kind of one of those days where potentially it could slip away that I wouldn't run. So, you know, it was, it was you know, I was happy that I got the run done. I wasn't overly happy with the run, but so be it, that's kind of a part of the journey. But the bit that I was really interested in was, what was my thought process going into the run? And my thought process was, you're going to have an easy run. And if anything, my thought process was, you're going to have a lethargic run. So the experience I had was a reflection of the thought process that I had created leading into the run. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it does. So the experience I had was determined by the thought process that I wanted to have going into the run. So then I had my Tuesday run, did my Wednesday run. Wednesday run was a good run. Actually, something very really interesting happened on Wednesday. Um, a lot of, just, this is another, so I'm just kind of sharing stuff with you guys right now, but um, a lot of people are really anti the use of music and training. Well, not a lot of people, but some people are. Um, I'm a big believer in music and training. I'm a big believer that it, there's something about music that helps us lift to higher levels. And on Wednesday, I had to do about 40 minute, 40, I think 45 minute kind of hill repeat session. And I was listening to a really good interview with a movie director I like. And I was listening to it while I was working at my computer. And basically, once I get, got ready to go for my run, I stood about 40 minutes in this interview. And I thought to myself, do you know what? Just listen to this interview as you're doing your run today. But I wanted to run at a good intensity. So I kind of, I tried to push the tempo a little bit harder in my Wednesday hill repeats run. What was really interesting is, as I looked back on the weeks before run, 
I'd actually run faster the week before. And I, and I couldn't figure it out because if you'd asked me if I'd worked harder on the week where I'd listened to the interview with the director, I would have said, yes, no, I definitely worked harder. I definitely put a lot more effort in. But if you look at the times of the run, the week before, I definitely ran faster. I ran about probably 15 seconds a K faster over that session. Now, I actually felt like I was running faster the week, you know, this latest session with the podcast. The difference was I was using the, the music the week before. So the music made the intensity seem easier when I was running the week before. So I went faster the week before, but it didn't seem like I was working as hard. Whereas in the second week, I was using a podcast, which is good for occupying my time, but not necessarily for driving me. And I find, I like listening to podcasts and audiobooks, but when I'm training, if I'm looking for intensity, music seems to give the perception of intensity, it seems to drop me away. And and I really, like, when I was doing Iron Man, I would listen to podcasts and books all the time and hardly ever listen to music. But in this last period of my athletic career, I've really used music a lot more in my training and I'm finding that I run, I train harder and it seems easier because of the use of music. So that's just another kind of side note here. But go back to my point. So then Friday, I had a run on Friday. I, I had a really good run. I felt good and strong I I kind of the objective was endurance with a bit of strength and I and I really hit that hard my my pace was at a pace I was really good at and then on Saturday I do a, I do a Saturday run and the week before on a Saturday I, I did a 10k run at a pace that I was really happy with like I did I think I did 37 minutes for 10ks which for me at the moment I wouldn't have expected to go that speed I probably still got another minute or two in, in speed to work on but you know again for this moment I was really happy with so then this Saturday, I was going to do one of my local hill runs, which is me from our house, 5k up a hill, turn around, come back. And normally when I do this run, I average somewhere around five minute k's because you're going uphill and then you're running downhill. But something about my last week's run where I ran 10k's at a fast pace made me think to myself, I want to run a hard run today. And in my mind, I just kind of, I pre-programmed the experience I wanted to have. So one thing I did is I kind of, normally on my Saturday run where I run up the hill, there's this kind of a marker I get to at my turnaround time. So I normally turn around because I'm coming downhill on the way down. I normally turn around at 25 minutes. So I run up for 25 and then I turn around and come down after 20. And normally I get to very much the same point on the uphill every time and so I thought to myself okay well today on my run I want to go another couple hundred meters up the road probably about 300 meters up the road before I hit 25 minutes and then I want to get home in that 20 minutes again so I went into the run preloading a a new target but I also thought how do I want to feel what's what kind of intensity do I need to sit in to be able to achieve that run and it was really interesting. I remember walking up my driveway. I live on a hill, so my driveway is quite steep. So I had to walk up my driveway to start my run. And I remember just kind of mentally knowing that as soon as I pushed my start on my timer, I was going to, you know, run a hard run. Like I just, I just knew because I pre-programmed myself for that run. Well, I pushed start, and I had a blinder of a run, a run where I normally average. Um, you know, probably around five minutes, yeah, actually around five minutes, maybe a little over five minutes, I averaged four minutes and six seconds a K. So I basically took about a minute off a K over this run. Now, admittedly, I don't normally run this run that hard. So when I say five minutes, I'm not going that hard, but I probably would have thought a hard run would be somewhere around four minutes, 20. So I was 15 to 20 seconds faster than what I thought I would be able to go in this run. And, and tell you what, I was rewarded like you wouldn't believe. I felt on top of the world when I got back from this run. A, because I was running fast. B, I was just, you know, to do a 10K, I did 41 minutes at that speed. I was really over the moon with. I felt strong. It was a struggle. Uh, it was just everything that I loved about exercise. But the key to me, the, upon reflection, the key to the session was, was that I pre-programmed how I wanted to, to feel in this session. Going back to that point that I made at the beginning of what I'm talking about here is that the success of the session came down to the fact that I took the time to pre-program what the session was going to be like. Obviously I used music as well, which helped, and I used music I loved, but I almost knew once I pushed start on my clock that I was going to have a good run. And I knew that because I'd pre-loaded beforehand. And one of the things I often talk about with exercise, 
particularly for, and there's probably two paths we can look at here. One path is for the person who isn't exercising at all, is to use the strategy in getting you out the door. So to preload, seeing yourself taking the actions of getting out the door and the feelings you're going to have throughout the session and at the end of the session because you did the session. And then for those people who have the routine of exercise but actually know deep down you're not training as hard as you could, this is a great strategy to use. And it's one strategy I'm really trying to get into is this whole idea of give yourself time before you start to prepare your mind for what you want to achieve. Because often people just turn up to training and start. And, you know, my Tuesday run, that was a bit of a reflection of that, where I just kind of get out the door and do it, Bev. Whereas on my Saturday run, where I had a run which just made me feel on top of the world, I knew that's what I was going to have because I'd spent the time creating that. So the lesson for me is, now not every run needs to be as hard as possible, but definitely there's, there's lots of times in my week where I need to be training hard. But the lesson for me is, to be a successful athlete, I need to spend the time before any session to really focus on the objective of the session and to preload the experience I'm going to have in that session. And if I can do that, well, experience is teaching me I'm going to have a much more successful session moving throughout so I suppose if, if you think about yourself when you are exercising so this again if you are the person listening to this who never exercises or well then maybe it's time for you to kind of practice this I'm going to practice going for a walk tonight and I'm not going to let those kind of thoughts of why I can't win the walk win I'm going to spend a few minutes and it doesn't take long just to think about seeing myself getting out of the door, thinking about how I'm going to make the, the walk a good experience and feeling about how I'm going to feel at the end of the walk as I walk back in the door. And for those who are experienced exercises, like I ultimately believe exercise is most enjoyable for an experienced exerciser when they know they've, they've trained well. And my Saturday run and some of the runs I've had over the last few weeks are just it just reminded me of that. When I got home from that set there, I died. Like I, I was fatigued, my legs were sore, but man, did I feel alive and on top of the world. And I think that for those who are listening to this who love exercise, that's what you want. So, you know, if you're driving to your session or if you're turning up to the gym, you know, don't let yourself get into that habit of how do I move away from intensity, preload, and then there's a much higher chance you'll be successful with it. So hopefully there's some good stuff in there for you. Anyway, I just want to mention a few patrons of the show. And I have had a new patron of the show over the last couple of weeks, and it's Priscilla King. And Priscilla King, when I saw your name, I instantly thought Elvis. Because isn't it Priscilla Presley was the wife and the king of rock and roll? So I just thought, when I saw it, I just thought Elvis. I'm not sure if you've ever had that before. I, to be honest... I'm pretty obvious when it comes to things in life, so I'm, I'm thinking you probably have had the Elvis reference at some stage in your life. So then I thought of Elvis songs, and there's kind of two songs that I thought of. I thought Love Me Tender or All Shook Up. And I'm going to say All Shook Up. There you go. I'm going to say Priscilla, All Shook Up King. There you go, because when people are around you, you just make them all shake up, which means they're excited to be with you. Priscilla King, you are an absolute rock star. Thank you for being a patron of the show. And let's just name a couple other patrons of the show. Michael Noak, he's the hammer. We've got Renee, the hawk whores. Michael, hardcore O'Kane. Um, Samuel Molino Weaver, mysterious man. And Donald, the explorer, James. These are people who support me and what I do with the show. It really, really, really makes a big difference to what I'm doing. Seriously, um, I just can't say thank you to my patrons as much as just enough because you guys are absolute stars. You really do support me in what I'm doing. Uh, I, you know, just if you want to become a patron, go to bevanjamesiles.com. You can just donate every time I release a show. I just kind of send out and you just contribute as much or as little as you know, as much or as little as you want. And again, it just helps me do what I'm doing. And it really does. I've got to be honest, it really does. So thank you to the patrons of the show. And uh, let's get into the interview. Right now I've got an interview with John Young. Okay, everybody, I'm, I'm very happy to have on the show a man that we had on, uh, we talked about on our show a few weeks ago, a guy called John Young, who is the first man ever to complete an Ironman. Now, is it dwarfism? What, what's, what, 
I've got to be honest, and I'm sure you get this a lot, I get confused about the right term to describe you, <laughs> if you get what I mean. So, um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, first, thanks for thanks for having me on. I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, I guess I, I prefer to be said, I, I prefer to use the term, I'm a person with dwarfism, Okay. Um, rather than saying he's a dwarf, because then that's just using that as the only identifier for who I am. So I'm lots of things, and I just happen to be a person with dwarfism. Nice. Other phrases, other phrases that are used <clears throat> that are that are acceptable is a person with short stature, or you know, and that's about it. The only word that most of us kind of cringe when we hear is the M word, the word midget. That's traditionally been a kind of derogatory term, and okay. and it's only because as a child that's kind of the term that people use to to you know take the piss out of you and 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 bug you. So so it's when we hear it, we we get upset. But otherwise, you know. Short statured or, or a person with dwarfism is great. Okay, great. Um, so maybe maybe take us take us back. So um, you know, obviously, being brought up with dwarfism, it's a different experience to what the traditional person maybe is going to have in life. So maybe just tell us a little bit about your kind of history before this level of sport became your life, and uh, and then we can look into why you got into sport, or, or have you always been doing sport? I've always been interested in sport, but but never really an active participant, and that's partly because you know I, I grew up in Canada, um, kind of the I was born in the mid '60s, grew up in the '70s, uh, grew up in a family where I was the only person with dwarfism, but luckily at a really early age, my mom and I were riding on the subway, and we ran into another man who had dwarfism, and and I'd never met another person wow. like face to face with dwarfism, and I was maybe six years old. And, and I remember my mom asking him a lot of questions, but the one question that, that he, she asked that really stuck was, she said, what's the one piece of advice you would give me raising a, a child with dwarfism? And he said, do you have any other children? And she said, yes, I have five other children. And he said, raise him like all of your other kids. Don't give him anything special. Don't give him any breaks. And I kind of knew right when I heard that, that the jig was up because <laughs> prior to that, I had, I had three older sisters and two older brothers. And, and with the three older sisters, I basically had four mothers and they all kind of looked after me and they all kind of did stuff for me. And, and, and when I asked, you know, they pretty much did what I asked. So mm. we got home that night. My mother basically sat everybody down and said, okay, from now on, John's going to have to do everything for himself. And, and that kind of day, you know, my life changed. And so you know, if I wanted to get something out of the cupboard, I had to push a chair over and climb up on the counter and get it. And and all those things, you know, I, I pretty much was, was given the same expectations as all of my siblings. And so that's kind of, you know, my, my life kind of went that way. Um, I had lots of friends. I, I you know, I, I ran around with buddies. We, we, I grew up in Canada, like I said, so I ice skated a lot. And But I never played any organized sport. Maybe once, I think one summer, I remember playing Little League Baseball. And that was it. And I'd always been a swimmer, so swimming to me was always natural. And, and I enjoyed that a lot, but never kind of a member of a team and, and never really, you know, I was, when I got to high school, I was like the team football manager and, and I would be involved and with my mates and, and having a good time, but never really a member of a team doing much in, in that respect. And, and I never, I don't think I met another little person until I was 16 or 17. And again, it was riding the subway and, and, and this gentleman came up to me and he said, Hey, I'm a member of this group called the little people of Ontario. Would you like to come to a meeting? And, and I thought, okay, sure. And I went to that meeting and it was, I'll be really honest with you. It was kind of the scariest day of my life because I walked into this room and here was everyone that looked just like me. Wow. And I, I've never seen that before. Yeah. And I initially I was scared and, and I kind of pulled back and, and didn't go to any other meetings until, you know, kind of in my early twenties. And I, and I got involved again after that. But, but my childhood, like I said, it was just kind of like everyone else just doing my thing. And, and, and I had a lot of friends and, and, and enjoyed what I had, but, but never really into any kind of, you know, athletics for the healthy kind of aspect. I just did it for fun. What was scary about going to that meeting? Just seeing everybody looking just like you. It's as if, let's say you had this huge blemish on your face that you never really had to look at. And then all of a sudden, you look in a mirror and you see it. And you kind of go, oh, that's ugly. That's gross. Uh, okay. And then, that was kind of my initial feeling. It, I was, I don't want to say ashamed, but it was just kind of like everything was on display. And I think it was partly because my family said, hey, you're just like everyone else. Like, just don't worry about it. And so I didn't worry about it. But when you see it like there face to face – 
wow, I, I look like that. I walk like that. I, I sit like that. And, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, when you're, when you're 16, 17 years old and all you're interested in are girls and, and you see it, it just was scary. And so I, like I said, I had, I think I just had to mature a little bit. And so it, it, what particularly could have been quite a, in a moment of acceptance actually kind of was a moment of rejection. Just, but all internal, like it was, yeah, wasn't yeah. them. It yeah. was all from, it was just my misconception. And I think it's also because nowadays, I think organized groups, there's organized groups in the United States, little people of America, little people of Canada is a little bit more organized. And I think they're more regular meetings. And so kids really look forward to kind of being with their friends, you know, we're all the same and you're all on the same level. And, and like my wife, my wife also has dwarfism and so does our 14 year old son. And he loves going to like these regional meetings or to national conventions because he's with all these other buddies and they just run around and, and they can just do their own thing and not have to carry a care so much about, you know, well, here's the tall guy and here's the short guy. It's, they're just all the same. How much of your identity was, was in the fact you had dwarfism? Um, I don't, I don't know if it was so much, I, I think, I think it was more about my reaction to having dwarfism as opposed to being short statured. I'm, I've always been, you know, I think thanks to my mother, I've always been very self-confident. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, I kind of speak out for myself. Um, I don't like it when people say you can't do that. You're too short. And that happened a lot as a child growing mm. up. You know, I think that was part of my rejection or my pullback from sports is I would go out to try out for a team and, and right away the coach would say, Oh, I don't know if this is really a good idea for you. You might get hurt. And, and so I, I kind of, you know, I, I said, fine, okay, I'm not going to worry about it. And nowadays there's you know, a lot more evidence that, that being, being involved in sport is a lot better for you than sitting around. And so I, I, I kind of appreciate that, but I think it's more so, like I said, how I reacted to it as opposed to, you know, and, and, when I talk about dwarfism with my students, for example, I'm a high school teacher. Mm. My students always have to kind of like they they forget. They say we we forgot that you're short statured. You're just Mr. Young, the the guy that maybe gives too much homework or whatever. You know, the the short statured part is down way on the list. And and I think the same way. I think it's just part of me, but it's a very kind of minor part of what makes me me. Um, it was interesting watching the, the video they did on you. There was a sense of I am proving myself to those who doubted me in the past, at least in that video, in the way you communicated it. Um, was that partly because of that kind of rejection of sport when you were younger? I think so. And it's also, you know, it's also like I'll be out training on my bike, let's say, for example. And it doesn't happen so much in the area where I live now because people tend to know a little bit more about me and there have been, you know, newspaper articles and whatever. And, and so people know me. But a couple of years ago, for example, I'd be out for a bike ride and a car full of teenagers would pull up to me and, and they'd snicker and yell something out the window and they'd drive away. And, it, and you know, I, I can kind of deal with that two different ways. I can get upset and, and say, well, I'm not going to ride outside anymore. I'm going to ride downstairs in the basement on my trainer. Or I can say, well, you know, whatever, I'm going to prove you wrong. And, and so what I tended to do was I would, I would, I would bike really fast and try and catch up to them at the next stoplight. And I'll just, I'll stop and I'll look at them. And there's usually kind of like this double take and they're embarrassed. And so I think part of me is, you know, proving to them. And so when I'm out in a race and and I'm struggling a little bit and I think, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'll slow down or maybe I should stop. Maybe I should pull out of this race. I immediately think of all those kind of naysayers of the people that doubted me, and I say, no, I'm going to prove them wrong, and I'm going to do it, and and whatever happens, happens. So you've actually turned it into a real motivator for yourself. Absolutely, I I, I try very little to feel sorry for myself, and and I and I I try really hard to kind of turn any kind of that attitude, you know, to kind of make me push a little harder. And, and I think it works for the most part. It's interesting at that moment when you were six years old and your mother basically discovered she needed to bring you up like normal, that, that's kind of, it's, it's an interesting path, isn't it? Imagine what would your life would have been if that hadn't have happened. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I talk to, you know, I see parents now of, of children with dwarfism that are very young and, and I get to pass on that information. And, mm. and, you know, they'll say things like, oh, our local doctor is telling us you shouldn't let her, shouldn't let my son take part in gymnastics or maybe my daughter shouldn't do this. And I immediately say, like, if their body isn't hurting and they're not complaining about pain, you need to let them get out there and do it. And, and, and it's nice to be able to kind of pass that on because I think some kids can grow up in a sheltered environment. And, and I worry that, that that's going to then transfer to their adulthood. And anytime they face a challenge as an adult, 
they're immediately going to kind of pull back and say, oh, I can't do that. Yeah. And, and and I think that's an important message that needs to get kind of – and that's I think that message applies to anybody. You know, anyone who's enabled, isn't it? My, my, my limiters enable me to not move forward in life. You know, that's, yep. a, that's a common thing, isn't it? Hey, so, so you know, you got into your 20s. Tell me about what got you open to participating in sports. You know, you had this kind of rejection experience through younger years because people were probably trying to protect you. Um, and then what, what moment did you start to think, and you, and you participated a little bit, but then what started you turning you into the John Young that you are now? Well, I, I kind of, you know, I'd always been a swimmer, as I said, and had never done any running, never done any cycling at all. And and then, you know, life just kind of continued. I, I got married and and my wife and I actually lived in Hong Kong for four years and our son was born when we lived over there. And then when we got back from Hong Kong, this would have been, you know, in the early 2000s, I, I started to become very overweight and, and was really kind of not active at all. And my wife encouraged me to to get to the doctor, and oh, wow. and I just basically this was you know this was kind of a two and a half maybe three year metamorphosis where I went I went to the doctor was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea I was 195 pounds and was not doing anything, and so when I got diagnosed with this machine a CPAP machine and started getting proper sleep I got back into swimming, and that was probably around you know 2005 2006, and then I. I bored my wife's bike one day and cycled to school. That's a, it's about 10 miles from where I live up to the school. And, and I actually cheated the first time and cycled to the train station, put the, tra- <laughs> put the bike on the train and then cycled from the train station. So I, I maybe cycled four miles, so not that far anyway, but I, I kind of liked it. And so I, our local YMCA said, we're having this cycling thing once a month where we cycle to different locations on a Saturday. So again, here I was just bored my wife's bike and chugged along never thinking about anything. And then one day, uh, winter 2009, somebody sent me a video with Dick and Rick Hoyt and they were doing the Hawaii Ironman. And I literally watched that video and was brought to tears. And I thought, here's this father and son together doing this amazing thing. And at that point, my son was quite young. He was, uh, he would have probably been about six, five, six, seven years old. And he had started to get some challenges at school, being teased by his mates and being told, oh, you know, you're too small, you're too short. And he would come home and say, well, is that ever going to change? And I'm like, no, it's not. Oh, and you're always going to be this size. You got to find out what you're good at. And when you tell that to a seven-year-old kid, they really don't understand. And they're, mm. they're just immediately, they're still upset. And so I kind of thought, well, maybe I can do his triathlon and he can watch me do it, probably see me come in last place. And, you know, as long as I enjoy it, we'll see what happens. Mm. So I signed up for my first sprint distance triathlon in 2009. I'd never ran a race in my life before I did this race. Wow. So here was a 5K, you know, it was a 5K run after the, you know, after the, the swim and the bike. And I, I think I came in second last. And I was smiling ear to ear. And my, my son immediately said, Dad, did you win? <laughs> and, I, and I said, no. And he said, well, why are you happy? And I said, well, because I tried my best and I had a lot of fun. And I could just see the wheels starting to turn in his head. And he kind of thought, oh, okay. And that after that race, I was hooked. And that summer, I think I ended up doing three other sprint distance triathlons. And, and that was it. And that was 2009. I was 43 years old. And that was the date that I started. And, and now, you know, here I am, here I am, you know, in 2017. And I, you know, I've, I've done probably, I think, 45 or so triathlons altogether. Um, nine marathons, a bunch of half marathons. And then, like you mentioned in the, the video showed, I raced in Maryland last, last fall and, and did Ironman Maryland. So, so when you watch the, the Hoyts, the Hoyts have been an inspiration to so many people. Did, at that moment... Was it, did you deep down know you wanted to do an Ironman? No, not at all. No. I, I just wanted to do a sing, like just a triathlon. And I really, you know, I, I'm sure my wife kind of wondered, what's this crazy guy doing? Like open water swimming and cycling and, and, a, and, a, and a run. And I had no desire. I, I don't think it was until, you know, that summer I kind of thought, well, maybe next year I'll do a half marathon and then depending on how the half marathon goes, I'll, I'll see. And I did, I think I did one Olympic distance in 2010 and I did a half marathon in the fall 
and and you know my body was still cooperating and things weren't feeling bad and 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 then you know I also got hooked in with a, a group called Achilles International and and I met up with them in in 2012 when I was uh, racing the New York City Triathlon and I've been a member of that team ever since. But no, it, it, there was never the idea of an Ironman. I think until until I did my first half Ironman, and then you know things I started thinking and thinking, and and you know it, it kind of went from there. What, what is Achilles? I, 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 since you've been um, since I've seen you, I've seen Achilles everywhere. So what is Achilles? Achilles International is a group that was founded by a gentleman named Dick Trom, who is an amputee. And he wanted to race in the New York City Marathon a number of years ago. And he is actually the person that inspired Terry Fox to run across Canada. Because Terry Fox heard about this guy that ran in the New York City Marathon that was an amputee. And Dick Traum has started this organization. And what it is, is it's a group for physically and, and, uh, and physically challenged runners. A lot of visually impaired runners, runners with traumatic brain injury, um, uh, other, you know, um, other types of challenges, amputees. It has a whole group called the Achilles Freedom Team, and they're all uh, wounded warriors that have come back from Afghanistan and Iraq and race uh, in hand cycles. And um, I just waved to my son. He just came in from school. <laughs> um, and he, uh, yeah, and so, so we're basically all physically challenged athletes. We There are a number of guides that help them and also handlers that will help at different events. And it's very, you know, it's very similar to the Challenge Athletes Foundation, but but a little different. And I've been, like I said, I've been racing with them, and they've been supporting me in in my in my journey. And 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 I consider them like they're the team that I belong to, and it's a great group of people. So, does your training differ to like? Is it very much a typical triathlon program that anyone's going to do, or do you have to shift things around in any way, shape, or form? I think there's a little bit of adjustment. My coach, Brian Hammond, he's out of New York City and he works with Achilles International. He's a great coach. He, like, for example, he, he found out that because I'm a much slower runner, for me to prepare for a marathon, for example, I don't do like a long run three weeks out or two weeks out like most runners. What I do is I break my long run over two days. And so okay. instead of doing instead of doing like a 20-mile run – I'll do an 11 mile run on Saturday and then on the Sunday I'll do another seven or eight. And what happens is I find my body recovers faster. I still feel like I've put in the same amount of miles, but I can recover and, and get back to training a lot sooner because I remember when I did my first marathon without any coaching, I did that 18, 19 mile run three weeks out and then I couldn't do anything for four days. I was exhausted. Yeah. And and I think I think it also, you know, it also lessens the chance of injury because if you're doing a four-hour run, that last hour of a four-hour run is pretty tiring and painful, mm. and one one little slip and and you can get injured. And so, that aspect of it is has I think is very different. I still do my swimming. I think the same. I do that by distance, and my cycling is is you know about the same. Um, you know, obviously I'm a little bit slower because I have smaller wheels and mm. and have to work a little bit more to go the same distance as anyone else. But but I think that I think it's just really my running that's kind of adjusted a little bit. What about your technique? Is like, is the like? Obviously, you have a different body shape than you know most people out there. So, is your technique different in any of the, the movements? It it really is, I think. But I I haven't had it really analyzed, and no one's come to me to try and change it because it's kind of like it seems to work. And I'll I'll give you an example. Like I, you know, I, when I when I do a marathon, for example, it takes me about seventy thousand steps. You know, I, I have a Fitbit on and yeah. it counted 70,000 steps and I'll go to see my massage therapist like two days after the marathon and she'll look at my feet and say, it doesn't even look like you ran at all. Oh, really? So there has, there has to be something I'm doing right because my feet are not getting banged up. Mm. And so I, you know, it's kind of like if it works, don't fix it. Like mm. that's kind of my thinking. And, you know, I, I've, I've thought a little bit about cadence and foot strike, but you know, I have shoes that work, and I don't lose a lot of toenails, and so I'm I'm pretty happy that way. Um, you know, and and the cycling, the cycling is, you know, I've obviously had to have a bike specially made. Uh, a company here in Massachusetts, Seven Cycles, has designed the bike that I have, and and they they've done a really good job, kind of, of you know figuring out a frame that works the best for me. Uh, and I use 20 inch wheels, uh, carbon wheels by. Uh, 
head. They, they've done a really good job. I think they just took what were originally wheelchair racing wheels and yeah. adjusted them, and now I have them on my bike. Oh, wow. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, so at what point did you think, I'm going to give a crack at this Ironman? I think it was, it was actually, I think, two years before I actually did it. Um, and I was originally aiming to do it in 2015. And I, you know, just, I'm a mathematician. And so I kind of sat here and I looked at, you know, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. Well, the next, you know, wise step is this. And then I thought kind of right near the end of 2014 that, that I wasn't ready. I just, part of me thought, I don't know if I, it's, I was looking for the, the right race to pick or whatever, but, but I wanted to give it one more year in 2015. And so in the, in 2015, I did three half Ironman races relatively closely. I did, um, I did uh, one in uh, well, one in July, one in August, and one in early September. And I kind of thought if I can do those races, you know, relatively close together, feel really good, you know, and 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 kind of progressively get a little bit faster, you know, th- that might work out. And then I was lucky. That's when Seven Cycles reached out because the original bike that I had was a very heavy aluminum kids mountain bike that had been adjusted, and so it was very heavy. And, and, you know, the bike that I have from seven is titanium and carbon. And so it's a lot lighter and they kind of reached out and said, you know, we want to help out. And, and through, um, kind of a third party who, who came up anonymously and very surprisingly last minute basically said, you know, we want you to fulfill your dream. And, and this woman and her husband basically paid for the bike, uh, unannounced. And yeah, it was a real surprise. I found out, you know, later that she had a, she has a, a niece who also has dwarfism and, and she basically said like, the world needs to see you do this. And so we want to do all we can to help. Wow. Yeah. And, um, did you, you know, we'll talk about the race in a second, but when you, you know, you obviously understand that what you do inspires, um, and there's probably, is there a pressure that comes with that? There is, but I, I also, uh, I'll also want to, I, I kind of temper that inspiration because I, when an average size person comes up to me or passes me in a race and says, you know, you're an inspiration. I kind of, I, I kind of, it's not that I regret hearing that, but an average sized person shouldn't really need me to inspire them because it's kind of like they got, they have to have that desire themselves and mm-hmm. it can't come from the fact like, well, if John Young can do an Ironman, I can, because you have to want to do it. It has to be inside of you. Maybe, you know, I, I think I do, I do really, I do really respect the, the kind of the comments I get from parents with children with dwarfism and that happens. And, and it really moves me because I never had that kind of, role model when I was a kid. I never mm. looked up to somebody that had dwarfism and said, wow, look at what this person is doing, you know, physically. Like I saw yeah. doctors and lawyers and, and sure, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a great member of society and, and that was important to me. But physically, I never saw somebody that kind of pushed the limits. And so I'm happy now that I, that I hear those kinds of things from parents. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not young, I'm, I'm 51 years old and I know I can't do this forever. So I'm hearing now that there are other people out there. There are younger people with dwarfism doing marathons. And there's a gentleman in, in Spain, I know, that, that started to get into triathlon. And he's done his first half Ironman. And he's a, he's a terrific athlete. And, and so it's nice to hear that it's spreading. And, and that's all I really hope for and I hope continues to happen. So tell us about your race. Um, the, the Ironman, was, it was amazing. First, the, the location where it was in Cambridge, um, Maryland, was a, a really small community, but they really embraced the Ironman kind of philosophy, and the whole community gets out there to help out, and, and that aspect of it was, was, I think, amazing to see. I was welcomed right away. The race director had no qualms in allowing me to race. Uh, sometimes I always wonder when I reach out to a, a new race and say, hey, I'm this person with dwarfism. I'd really like to do your race. Um, Jerry Boyle was terrific. And so that aspect of it was terrific. Um, in the end, uh, you know, I, I know people have already heard about this and the swim got canceled last minute because of bad weather. And mm. obviously you can't do anything about that. And so I was really bummed. You know, I was literally in my wetsuit, like ready to go in the water when they made the call. And so all of us were, were disappointed, but you, you take what you get that day. And, and I knew, you know, I knew I had to turn around then and get on my bike and, and do what I had to do. Um, the course is a really flat course. And so there, there are no uphills, but there are also no downhills. And so for 
100 miles because, again, the bike course ended up being shortened as well because the roads were flooded. So they had to detour it a bit. But for basically over, you know, uh, seven, seven hours or so, six and a half hours, I basically cycled nonstop because of the wind and because there are no, you know, hills, there's no place to recover. And so I just got on that thing and went. And, I, you know, I was happy with my bike time. The, 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 the aid stations were great. My nutrition worked out really well. Um, you know, I was happy with, with all of that. Um, and then, you know, I, I, the funny part was I, I got off the bike and my wife and son were kind of waiting right there near transition. And I remember kind of giving both of them a quick hug and kiss. And, and as I was running to the, the change tent, I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to do a marathon. Now my body is just totally like clamped up. I was just from being in that same position for all that time, but I got changed and, and, and got going and, and, and things were great. Um, the run course again, pretty flat. It's a it's a weird loopy course that you go over the same area two or three times. It's not a simple out and back, um, and and so I got to see a lot of the same spectators, a lot of the same support people numerous times, uh, a lot of friends, a lot of friendly faces. It it uh, the worst part about it was because it was bad weather and they'd had some really bad high tides. The run course actually flooded. And so two or three times I had to run through water that at one point was up to my thighs. Wow. So I was literally, and I was just laughing because it was just hilarious. Like, it's like, what are they going to throw at us now? Like, what are we dealing with? Oh, wait a second. You've, I think you've pushed mute on your, on your mic. Is that better? Yeah, there you go. Yep, yep, yep. Go. Okay, yep. sorry. Thanks for catching that. <laughs> um, no, I, I like what, what happened was they, I felt like it was like one of those Spartan races. Yeah. It was just, it was yeah. so bizarre with all these obstacles. But it, it rained a number of times during the run, but, but you know, it was glorious. And, and my coach was there. Brian actually made the trip to come down and encourage me to be there. And, and with about a mile and a half left, he was, he was kind of waiting there on the side of the road and he jogged with me for a little bit. And he just said, like, you will only ever have one first Ironman. So he said, like, soak this all in and kind of, you know, take in what's going to happen because this is going to be amazing. And, and so when I left him and was running, you know, there were only a few other people on the run course. It was getting pretty dark. It was about 10 o'clock at night. And I remember at one point I was running up to the last turnaround before coming to the finish shoot. And I remember kind of screaming at one point, look at me now. Why don't you look at me now? And basically I was yelling to all of those people that had ever made fun of me or teased me or doubted me. And I, and I kind of thought, look at what I'm going to do now. Mm. And, and I entered that finish shoot and the lights were blaring and I heard, you know, I heard them announce my name and, and, you know, my wife and son were there. Uh, and, and it was, it was surreal. It was amazing. Um, you know, and you know, when the race is over and you kind of start to reflect and people say, well, you didn't do an Ironman. It was 140.6 miles. You know, every race is absolutely personal. And mm -hmm. if, if you spend your life worrying more about somebody else's accomplishments and what they're called, then I, I really think you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. You know, I, I, I didn't get the tattoo on my body that says 140.6. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I ever will. But I know what I did that day, and I completed the race that they gave me, and I'm proud of what I did. And I'm happy to say that I actually, uh, yesterday, officially um, uh, registered again to go back to Maryland, and I'll be back there again this October to do the same race again. Well, the, the way I look at it is that we sign up for the sport because we want a certain challenge, don't we? Now, obviously, your day didn't represent numbers that the challenge meant to be, but you had that challenge, didn't you? And you learnt about yourself in that moment of adversity. And, and really, that's what I mean ultimately is about. Absolutely. And I, I really think those people that are fixated with Ironman is 140.6, and if you don't do 140.6, you haven't done an Ironman. Mm. Well, if you're if that's the way you define an Ironman, then that's that's your baggage to carry. Mm. And I don't I don't really care. And and I, you know, and again, I completed that race that I had. And, and I think really being an Ironman is all the training leading up to it. It's all the work I did all last summer. It's all those long rides that I had all by myself, you know, fixing flat tires and working out my nutrition and, and everything. And, and it's also the journey that my wife and son took with them 
you know, when I'm not home or when I'm up early in the morning out to do my training, wondering where I am and hoping I'm safe. It's, it's all part of that package. And I'm glad I got to share that with them, but, but I'm very proud of what I did. And, and, and I don't, you know, I don't look at that day as being any less of any other person's Ironman race. Did, um, did you have doubt going into it? Did you like, was it possible you wouldn't make the cutoff? Um, I don't, I think I had the same doubt as everyone else. Um, I've always been a confident swimmer and, you know, obviously if, if the weather is extremely rough, everyone's got to deal with that challenge. But, you know, I'd done a two mile swim in a race earlier in the year and was well under the cutoff that would have put me, you know, would have put me in under, you know, I believe the cutoff's two hours and 20 minutes. I'm confident I can do that distance in a little under two hours. Um, you know, the bike again, I, you know, given any malfunctions, if I, if I'm doing well, I'm, 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 I'm quite confident I'll be able to do it. Yeah. Uh, how do you manage life around sport? You know, this is a very, uh, time, energy, life hungry sport. Uh, you've got a family, you've got a career, you've got, you know, all these other things. How do you make that work? Um, there's a little bit of juggling, but I, I'm a real early riser. And so I don't get up, I don't mind getting up early in the morning and doing a lot of my training then. Um, the school where I teach, uh, Pingree school in, in South Hamilton, it's a small independent prep school and they have actually been extremely supportive of my journey and, and encourages, they encourage me a lot to kind of get out there and do it. And, and so, you know, if I, I coach the swim team in the winter time, but when I'm not coaching the team, in the fall and in the spring, there's, you know, a lot of days I'll bring my gear with me and right after school, I'll run out the door and, 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 and do a, a run or I'll bike up to school and, and then bike home from school. So I try and work it around that. Um, again, on the weekends, uh, the nice thing about being a, a high school teacher or being a teacher in the summer times, I have a lot more time off during the day. And so when my wife is at work, I try and do my long rides in the summer during the day when she's gone. And yeah. so I can be home in the evening. So I, again, I consider myself really lucky that way. So I've, I've managed to kind of, you know, my, my peak training week is probably around 14 hours a week. Yep. You know, it's, it's not, it's not astronomical amounts of time and, and, and I do my best to make it work. You, you say there was a moment in the race where you kind of yelled out to the, to those who had doubted you, did, did anything go from you in that moment? Oh, I, I cried a lot. I really did. And it, it, But I mean, I, I just felt like it was kind of like, you know, just look at me now. And, and I felt really proud. I just, I felt that I'd proved them all wrong. And, you know, and I also carry, I carry a few little trinkets with me when I run um, from some young children with dwarfism that have really had a lot more difficult life than I did. They're you know, there's a, a young girl in, in Wisconsin. Her name is Vivian. She was born three days before the 2013 Boston Marathon. That was going to be my first run at Boston. And her mom and I have been in touch ever since she was born. And she's had a lot of surgeries and, and dealt with a lot of challenges. I carry a small picture of her. Um, I carry a sock from a young girl who died at a really young age who had dwarfism. And, and her mom kind of reached out to me and, 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 and hope that I would kind of carry something from Katie with me. And uh, so those little, you know, those are a couple of the trinkets that I kind of carry. There's a young boy in Australia. Uh, he's in Sydney. His, and his, his parents are, um, they're Aboriginal. And uh, his name is uh, Quaden, Kate Quaden. And he, he, um, he gave me a uh, uh, Aboriginal headband. Um, the, and I carry it wrapped around my race belt when I do some of my longer distance races. And so, you know, I carry little pieces of all these children with dwarfism because when I struggle during the race and when my legs start to hurt, I think to myself, they've had a much harder journey than I have. I can just keep running a little more and I'll be fine. And so I get a lot of encouragement from them as well. And, and I think that's the, the one piece that kind of, that really kind of keeps me going. What are the things that a triathlon has given to your life that you didn't have before? Oh, it's given me a little bit of focus. It's it's given me the ability to take a job that I thought was too massive to do and break it up into smaller pieces. Um, like, for example, when I run a marathon, I basically run for nine minutes and then I walk for a minute. So I do every marathon in 10-minute increments. And I find that that, that aspect first it makes the marathon go really well and all i have to worry about is that 10 minutes 
and I think about those 10 minutes and I do my nine minutes of running and I do my one minute of walking. And so now I've taken jobs at school or jobs around the home and I've done a much better job breaking them up into smaller manageable pieces. And, and it's really helped me reduce my stress in everyday life. Mm. Um, <clears throat> just any other messages you want to share with the audience? Um, I think, you know, <clears throat> when somebody comes up to me and says, oh, I could never do a marathon, like an average size person, for example, says I could never do a marathon. My response to them is always, it's because you don't want to. Like you absolutely have to want to do this. Mm. And, and I kind of have a saying that I always say, it's your will has to be stronger than your won't. Mm. And if something inside of you is saying, you know, nope, nope, you can't do it, then you're never going to be able to do it. But I truly believe that if, if there's something that you want to do bad enough in your life and you put in the training and you put in the, you know, the time, you can get it done. And, and you know, and I, I, like I said, I don't think I'm this poster child for adversity uh, and I don't want to be thought of that way. I'm just this 51-year-old guy who decided to change his life. And and I, I, I'm kind of like the tin man now where I don't want to stop because I think I'm going to rust. <laughs> well, I think you have a few more years in front of you. It's funny, you, you say you don't necessarily see yourself as an inspiration. But to me, an inspiration is someone who makes other people think I can. And uh, and I think when people look at you, uh, and, and obviously we all have limits, and obviously people perceive the fact that your size could be your limit, but the fact that you you know, you know move through this, you allow others to see that maybe I can too. And so to me, you very much are an inspiration to not just your own little world, but to the world out there as a whole. So keep being you, mate. Keep doing what you're doing in the world, um, and we look forward to seeing it. We'll be watching your result in Maryland, I tell you. Cheers, Bevan. Awesome, mate. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Righto, that's my interview with John Young. What a, what a, what a, what an, what an inspiration, eh? And, and to me, there's a couple of things that really come through for me. I love the idea about even how he defines himself. You know that uh, that kind of I am a person with I am not. So I am not a dwarf. I am not a short person. I am someone with dwarfism. And I think that's, there's some, there's something about that, isn't there? You know, because someone like us, you know, for someone who has such an obvious physical difference, it's so easy just to label them as this. And I think there's a real lesson. I, to me, there's it's such a lesson in, um, in in his perspective on this. And I, and I think the real lesson is for those in his world, being me, being you, being everyone else, is that when we say something about someone as something what is the input on that person? So if I say someone's a dwarf, well, what does it then put on this person? But if we say this person is a person who is, you know, has this, or, you know, that changes our perspective because it allows us to open up to this just this, this person. And it's one thing I, I find really frustrating around things like racism or bigotry or, you know, any kind of area where we look at somebody and we, we assume they're something because there's an aspect of them that's we can stereotype. So this is a dwarf, so we can, you know, is that you you miss out. and Well, A, you, you damage that person because you don't give them a chance to show the real you. But then B, you miss out because you put them in a context which could close you off to what they could offer you. And I tell you what, the more I can be experienced to more different people in the world, the greater my life is going to be. So that's one thing I really loved about his interview. Obviously, the, the inspirational person, um, you know, overcoming adversity is something that he's come really good at. But probably one of the other things I really loved was this whole idea of that when he met the, the other person with the same issue that he had as a kid, and they said, just treat him like everyone else. And I love that moment of... You know, that Sliding Doors moment, I don't know if you guys seen the movie Sliding Doors. Actually, I haven't seen the movie Sliding Doors, but but it's a movie where if two, you're literally, like I think they're at a train station and you can go one door or the other, and what does it mean for your life to go in either door? And, and I'm sure all of us have this moment we can identify in our life where there are a couple of sliding doors. And uh, for me, that's, you know, I know, you know, I, I, I'm just a really clear one for me. I was, there, was a, there was a gym I was going to join, and I didn't. I joined another gym because my partner went to that gym. And those two doors are completely different lives. But for me, the the real thing that I loved about that moment where he, 
his parent talked to about someone else with dwarfism and said, you know, well, what do you recommend? They said, just treat him like everyone else. Was in that moment, he went from a life where he was maybe could be enabled to use himself as a victim. And they took that away from him and they said, no, you are someone who has to be responsible for your life. And enabling is, is to me, one of the biggest problems. I'm not sure if it's one of the biggest problems, but it is a big problem for a lot of people out there in that we can often enable other people to have their weaknesses because we think we're helping them out. And in his situation, you can kind of understand, you know, like uh, he was in his 50s. So can you imagine 50 years ago, the understanding around dwarfism? You know, they probably thought you need to cotton wool bug your kid kid because you will need to look after them. And, you know, this is probably the right thing to do. But what would have been the limits on his life if everyone cotton wooled him around life? And what would have been the effect upon his life? Whereas his parents, through that interaction, basically said, no, you need to, we need to bring you up like any other kid. We need to, your responsibility and so on and so on. And look at the man John has become. And there's probably two things I want you to think about when it comes to enabling. And enabling is, there's two areas. It's that whole, where, how do you enable other people to not confront the hard things in their lives? It's a really big question. How do I enable other people in my life to not confront the hard things in their life? And what I mean by that is sometimes we think we're helping, but we're actually hurting. And some good examples are, let's say you've got a friend who's, or let's say you've got a child who's really bad with money. And let's say that, let's just create a scenario. Let's say you've got a teenager or a late teen, maybe an early adult who's really bad with money. And, you know, they're of an, let's say an early adult, and they're of an age where, you know what, they really need to pull their socks up. But every time they struggle with money, they come to you. And it might be to the point where actually, you know, if you don't give them money, you think they're not going to eat. Like, it's, it's really bad. Now, in this situation, most parents are probably going to give their kids money to support them through this because they don't want their kids to starve. The downfall of this moment is is that by you giving them money and you being the way out, you don't make them confront the hard thing they need to work on. You just become a solution to fixing the short-term problem, which then enables them to stay in the same place. So in this situation, what we want to think about is what are the lessons this person needs to learn and then how do I support them towards these lessons? Now, sometimes it might be giving them money, but there'd be criteria around the money. Or other times it might be, no, actually you need to, I'm not going to give you this money. Now, if I say I'm not going to give you this money, this person then has to think of other ways to work towards this problem and find their solutions. I don't think it's a good idea to say, no, see, you know, don't have the money and bugger off. It's like, no, I can't give you this money, but I can support you towards finding ways to find money. So I don't think we should just leave people unsupported in times when they need support. But what I do feel is that we, if we just give them the solution, we enable them to stay in their problems. And that's a really big thing. So do you do that to other people? And often the reason we do this is justified. Like you love your child in this situation. You don't want to see your child struggle. But actually, they need to get through the struggle to learn the lessons they need to learn. But maybe another more harder way to think about this is, when have people enabled you, and what has that stopped you from confronting that maybe you need to confront in your life? It's a really hard question, because I imagine a lot of people listening to this maybe have been enabled in their life in ways that actually have limited you. And it's a good idea to actually think about and reflect upon this in your life. What have been the areas in your life where people have enabled you and allowed you to not confront what you should be working on within yourself? And their enabling means, A, you just go to them every time you need to work through something, but you never actually identify and work on the big issue that needs to be confronted. And to me, if you know that you have areas of your life where you actually just look for people to enable you, you need to start looking at yourself and you need to start really identifying how I can develop myself in this area so I become independent and overcome the issues that I have. It's a big one. I know it's kind of a big one to throw at you, but if you if you are identifying with this, go to those people and say, look, I don't want you to enable me. I want you to support me to find how I can grow as a person in this area. 
So if we're going to go back to that kid's example, it's for them to, you know, let's say I am that 20-year-old kid and I'm, you know, keep going to my parents for money, to say, look, mum, dad, I don't, I don't want to help with money, but obviously I've got some really poor money skills, obviously, um, you know, some things I need to work on, I need your support in this. I need your support to, to encourage me, to educate me, and to guide me so I am a person who has overcome these issues. Something to think about. Anyway, uh, John loved his interview. Um, yeah, check him out. He is on Twitter. I'll put a link to his Twitter on uh, the show notes to this. And you can follow him there. And, and as you can see how he goes in his next Ironman race. Bit of a madman that he is. And uh, if you want to become a patron of the show, go to bevanjamesoz.com. And again, you're just supporting me what I'm doing. If you are looking to run 5Ks, you can check out my running product, My 5K Dream. It's a total package for someone who wants to run 5K. It's kind of targeted at females between the age of 35 to 55. Um, it's seriously, it's pretty cool. And if you sign up, go to my 5k dream, you sign up, you get my three free video series. And then you know, it, later on after that, then you can get your option to join my 5k dream, which is 10 weeks of everything. Like, I mean, everything you need to train to run 5k's. Anyway, that's me for this week. I'll see you in a couple weeks time and keep on being you. Mm-hmm.